Hope you all are doing well. Um, We are in the book of Genesis. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 5. If you don't have one, just look underneath you there. You can grab any one of those and keep it and take it and give it to anyone you want. Um, Or for yourself, those are Bibles we have to give away. We're glad that you're here. Um, We've been going through the book of Genesis now. Uh, During the summer, we'll finish uh, in just a few more weeks. And as we're going through the book of Genesis... Um, as the video t- tried to introduce there, we're, we're trying to, um, as we go through the book of Genesis, answer some of the biggest questions, life's biggest questions that happen in life. I mean, we're not going to answer certainly all of them, um, but we're going to answer some of the biggest questions in life. Uh, we, we can get from, from creation, where did we come from, where is sin from, what's God's plan for marriage. There's lots of questions that are answered there in the very first 12 chapters. Um, today is one of those kinds of questions Uh, is sin. We're going to talk about uh, the seriousness of sin, the pervasiveness of sin. Um, And today is, we're going to be starting in 5 and going just from into chapter 6 and just going up to verse 8 in chapter 6. So 5 through 6, 8. The title of the sermon is Consequences of Sin. It's uh, it's a very serious um, subject. I guess all the subjects that we talk about uh, in a sermon, because they're from the Bible, would be serious. Um, But this one, because it's heavy and serious and weighty, it needs to be maybe shorter than, than normal. So that's, that's at least my attempt, that's my goal, uh, and we'll, we'll see what the Lord does. But we're going to be, as I said, in Genesis chapter 5, starting there. I'll certainly kind of touch into 4 a little bit as we go into 6. But let me pray, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for an opportunity again to be able to preach your word, and I pray for a soberness of mind and heart, and Lord, that you would, you would take the things that we say and look at today and help us <clears throat> understand just how much you dislike and hate sin. I pray that as we look at this weighty, serious subject, that we wouldn't be turned off by, uh, we wouldn't be turned off by it, but instead we would want to listen and see what it is that you think about sin. Therefore, it would widen and enlarge our deep love for the gospel and what you've done for us. But all the while, for those that are believers walking through sanctification, that we would never rationalize what we might be comfortable with. I pray, Lord, that you would fill this room with the Spirit, fill our hearts and minds with the Spirit, that you would Begin with me and show me where I need to trust in you more, believe in the gospel, and where I need to be more serious about killing sin in my life, and that you would widen that out to everyone in this room. We love you, God. We are desperate for your presence and desperate for you to come and convict. We love you, God, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason why this is important, we're going to see in chapter 5, you can see that there's many generations listed there. Uh, we'll start from Adam, and we'll go into 10 generations, and we'll get to Noah. And we'll see that the, the seriousness of sin um, generationally is important. Uh, if you notice there at the very end of chapter 4, as we talked about last week, from about chapter 4, starting around verse 17, going to the end of the chapter. Well, not the last two verses, but at least going 
into uh, verse 24, we see the line of Cain. God doesn't kill Cain, kill Cain. He shows him some grace, and Cain just has to leave the land, and he gives us seven generations. Very quick, very succinct. He doesn't want to spend too much time on it. The author, Moses, doesn't want to spend too much time on it, but you can see there in 417 where Cain has Enoch, and then Enoch gives birth to Irad, Irad, Mehuel, Mehuel, Methushel, or whatever, down to Lamech, and you can kind of see those seven generations. As soon as you get to Lamech, you see two immediate horrific sins of Lamech, Bigamy, first of all, where he takes on two wives, and then because someone strikes him, he kills this man, and then he sings his little hymn to his two wives, or sings his little song to his two wives, boasting about the sinfulness of him, that if Cain gave retribution sevenfold, Lamech gives retribution seventy-sevenfold. So you can already see the hardness of his heart, boasting of his exceeding sinfulness. And so we take those seven generations of Cain, who we know is not the promised one of, of, of the line. We, we know, as we've seen back in 315, there's this promised seed, there's this promised seed, the seed is going to come be the Messiah. And we have Cain showing us in those seven generations, he's definitely not the seed, and just how exceedingly sinful after seven generations Cain's line gets. And then in contrast to 4, chapter 5 starts where the writer wants us to see there's a difference. We notice right there at the very end of chapter 4, um, <clears throat> Seth is given in place of Abel. It says right there in, at the end of 25, um, the offspring instead of Abel, because Cain killed him, Seth is also given. And so then we have, his name is Enosh, which means weakness. And so as people there are filled with frailty, weakness, realizing their own brokenness and sinfulness, that's when, as it says, at that time people get, began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we have one generation of Cain, exceedingly sinful, boasting of their sinfulness. And then right there at the end of chapter 4, we see a second generation. That's Seth's line. And then we're going to go through chapter 5 seeing a different story. So the writer is wanting us very much to see four and, and Cain's line versus chapter 5, Seth's line, and compare the two. These are sinful. These are, are not sinful. These are righteous people. These are people that call upon the name of the Lord. And then it gives us a descendants. So what we're going to do today is go through 5 and 6. Um, we're, just 5 is just, the, uh, is just the generations, and 6 gets us into the really, really serious part. Um, which we'll get to. So it says, the book of the generations of Adam. I'm not going to go through all these generations. Some of them are really just trying to get you to the next guy. Um, but there are some things that I want us to see. Um, and as I said, chapter 5 stands in contrast of the evil in chapter 4. Uh, it's going to be 10 generations in chapter 5, but there's certainly some, th- some things that stand out. The book of the generations of Adam, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And bless them. Certainly sounds like Genesis 127. Um, and, <clears throat> and name them man. One commentator pointed out this is the first time Adam is actually named um, in, in the Bible. Before he's just called man. And he, the, the writer calls him Adam. But this is whenever God named him Adam. When they were created. Um, and that's because in the genealogy the writers want us to see God's the father of them all. God named Adam. And then you have Seth. Um, but uh, this is when they were created, and Adam lived 130 years. He fathered his own son in his own likeness, and after his image, and named him Seth. So Adam was 130 when Seth was born. We don't know how old he was when Cain was born, but that lets us know that there's about 100, maybe he was 30, 25, 30, 35, whatever. We've got a good 100 years um, between Adam and, I'm sorry, between Cain and Abel and finally Seth of other children being born. So he's really fulfilling Genesis 8 
128 um, of being fruitful and multiply, filling the earth and subduing it. Uh, so back to this. Uh, so, but Seth is that line. Seth is that promise line, promised to us back in 315. That's continued right there in 425-26. And now we're going into um, these other things where it says, When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam... Um, after he fathered Seth were 800, and he had other sons and daughters, and we know that. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, I want to focus in on Adam's death. Almost the rest of this genealogy is going to follow that pattern. Talk about a son, talk about how long he lived, and then he died. It's going to follow that same pattern. But I want to zoom in on one particular truth about Adam. In verse 5, it says, and then he died. The rest of them are going to die as well. Adam is different. Adam was created never to die. The rest of them, because they're in the line of Adam, maybe they were as well, but distinctly, Adam had a moment where he would have kept on living. And so when we come up to verse 5, and it says, Adam lived 930 years, and he died, this is not supposed to be. We need to let the weight of that land on us. We were created with Adam also to never die. This is colossal. And so the first thing that I want us to see when it talks about consequences and clarifications on sin, the first thing I want us to see is sin brings death. All the rest of this is going to happen. But sin brings death, not just to Adam, but everyone that's in the line of Adam. And that's all of us. Sin brings death to us. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. We will all die now because of our sin. Now, if you're in Christ, you will also live. Death doesn't have the final say-so. But as we're, going through this, <clears throat> as we're going through this genealogy, I want us to feel the weight of that first man that was created, that was created in the image of God, in perfect relationship with God, never should have died, but because he willfully sinned, he also died. We need to feel the weight of that. Let's keep moving through some of the, uh, through some of the genealogy. You've got Seth there, the second generation in verse 6. You've got Enosh there in verse 9, the third generation, um, which I've already said means, means weakness or frail or broken. That's his son that was mentioned in, in verse 26 of chapter 4. You've got Kenan, the fourth generation. You've got Mahalel, the fifth generation. Um, you've got Jared, the sixth generation, verse 18, which brings us to verse 21, <coughs> Enoch. Enoch is... The seventh generation. I know he's mentioned in 19, but I want to uh, zoom in on him on, on uh, verse 21. Enoch had lived 65 years and fathered Methuselah. And then we get this interesting thing. Now, <clears throat> Enoch is interestingly the seventh generation. And the names here are going to mimic two names from Cain's line. So the writer is wanting us to see look at these particular generations. You've got You've got one generation of Cain, and this is how th these guys go. And you've got one generation of Seth, and this is how these guys go. L let me explain to you why this is important. This is a quote from D.A. Carson. Um, now he's speaking of Mennonites, but he's talking about the importance of generations passing down um, what they believe and why it's important for them to pass down what they believe and how, if we don't, generations become more and more perversely sin sinful. We, we can see that even in this, but he says this. One generation of, of Mennonites believed the gospel. So they were believers, strong believers, and held, 
and held as well that there were certain social, economic, and political entailments. So whenever they believed the gospel, basically there were entailments or things that informed them about their lives living socially, their lives living economically, their lives living politically, and of course theologically, etc. One generation believed the gospel. The next generation, they weren't taught by their family to believe the gospel. They just assumed the gospel. But then they also identify with the entailments. So they just, they didn't believe the gospel, they assumed the gospel. And, and they held on to some of those necessary entailments like social, economic, political. Maybe they were the same, uh, the same political class. They, they made sure that they didn't believe in the thing, they believed in the things that their fathers believed in, but they just didn't know why. Because the first generation believed it, the next generation assumed it. And says, but then the following generation denied the, the gospel and the entailments just became everything. So we have three generations, as D.A. Carson says, and these particular Mennonites, as he's saying, one generation believed, the next generation just assumed, and when that happens, the next generation is just going to deny. And, that, and every generation is on the precipice of that. We can feel that in our own lives. If we become the kind of parents whose parents believed, and we're just assuming, and we're not going to believe as well, our kids are going to deny the gospel. And that's what's happening in this certain generation. One generation... Um, is somewhat sinful, and it just continues on. We're going to even see that happening in this particular line as we see it later on. So it's very important for us to realize how much we need to continually preach the gospel and explain the gospel so that our next generation doesn't just assume it, but they believe it as well. So we get to um, verse 21 in chapter 5, and we have Enoch. And if you remember over in chapter 417... Cain's son was Enoch. So the writer's wanting us to see here. Look at these two particular Enochs. You've got Cain's son who just became deplorable in their sin. But then look at this Enoch, specifically the seventh generation, God's perfect number, all intentional. Look what this, look what's descriptive of this particular Enoch in verse 22. Enoch walked with God. And after this, he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365. And then look at this. Maybe you've heard this. Enoch, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. For God took him. This means that this particular man, Enoch, never died. Calvin says that this is the, a brief description of a holy life. Salehammer says, of faithfulness and obedience. Death was not the last word for Enoch. He never died. So you're looking at the two and you're like, well, Cain's Enoch, well, his generation has become exceedingly sinful. But the seventh generation of Seth, he walked so closely with God, he walked so closely with God that he, he didn't even die. He just walked with God and God said, I, I, I want you up here right now. We know in Jude that he actually was a preacher. It said that he preached to the generations and proclaimed to them how exceedingly sinful they were. We also know in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up that he should not see death, and that he was not found because God had taken him up. Now before he was taken, he was commended of having, of having pleased God. So because he lived such a life of faith and walked with faith, um, contrasting the other Enoch, it shows us that death did not have the final say-so with him. Walking with God was the way back to life for, for Enoch. This, this is very helpful for us. We don't want to um, live a life that shows that death will have its final sting. Death will have its final say-so. Instead, if we have a description of a holy life, one that's um, 
describing us as living as people of faithfulness and obedience, then we will also walk with God. And I'm not saying that God's going to come get you like he did Enoch. Likely that's not going to happen. But what will happen is you will live a life that's holy. You will live a life that's faithful and obedient. And you will walk with God. And death will not have the last word in your own life. Sin brought death to all these generations. But Enoch was very, very special. Very interesting. And then it says that he had a son named Methuselah. Methuselah, one commentator says that literally means after him it comes. Uh, it's an interesting name to be named. After him it comes. It could be, what, are you, what are you anticipating there, Enoch? Um, likely it's the flood. So Methuselah has Lamech, Lamech has Noah, and then after it it comes would be the flood. Um, after that, Methuselah had Lamech. Uh, by the way, Methuselah is the oldest person in the Bible. He lived 969 years. So if you're ever called Methuselah, that just means you're old. Like if, somebody, if you're driving with somebody, it's like, tell Methuselah to get out of the left lane. Like the old person's driving slow. Um, that could be a compliment because they're in like the, the line of Seth. And Seth is a good line. So it could be a compliment or it could just be that you're really old and need to get out of the left lane. Um, so back to this. Uh, you have the ninth generation Lamech intentionally, again, wanting us to see the Lamech of Cain and just how exceedingly sinful he is compared to the Lamech of, of Seth held up as, as good, who actually is the one that gets to have Noah. And Noah is going to, as we see, bring comfort. I know your ESVs probably say, say relief, but comfort's a little bit more accurate. When Lamech had lived, I'm in verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years... <clears throat> He fathered a son and named him Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed this one. Very similar to the curse of Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 19. Um, out of the curse, 17 through 19, uh, the Lord has cursed this one to bring us relief, or also that's comfort um, from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, don't forget this relief and painful toil. Those two words together are going to... Uh, connect to something in chapter 6 in just a second. But we'll see there in 29 to bring us relief or comfort from the painful toil of our hands. And then verse 30, it says, Lamech, after he lived, fathered Noah 595 years, thus all the sons and daughters, thus all the days of Lamech, and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Lamech were 777, and then he died. And then after that, you can see Noah, at the year 500, had three sons. Pretty, pretty late. Pretty late in life. He's going to have them at 500. They're going to get in the ark at, when he's 600 years old. So the sons, basically, whenever they could start helping him, they're going to help him build the ark. Um, and so, obviously, he probably didn't have all three of them at 500. They were probably spaced out. But um, I, did, I did the math, and I'm pretty sure I did it right. But basically, uh, this, these ten generations walked with God. They were walking. They, they're held up, as in contrast to chapter 4, as, as good. There's going to be some problems as we get to the end of these generations that we're going to see in chapter 6. They're not, they're not prevalent, they're not noticeable in chapter 5, but they're held up in contrast to 4 as generations that, in the line of Seth that were um, righteous compared to chapter 4. Now, when I did the math, um, and I think I did it right, but after Lamech dies, uh, which is mentioned in 531, about five years later is whenever the great deluge or the flood comes. So all these particular people that are mentioned got to live, and then that's when the flood came, if I did the math right. So we can see that the Lord really cared for these particular people. Let's stop there. So what we've noticed just from chapter 5 is death, death, death at the, all, at the end of all of them. So the first, the first consequence or clarification on sin is that sin brings death. 
in all of our lives. Now, we're going to get to chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And this particular section here that's there, the point of this particular set of verses, of verses 1 through 8, is to get us to Noah and the flood. We need to know why the flood happens. And so the writer, he's not just making it up. It actually happened. This is, this is true. But he's going to put in verses 1 through 8 so that we can understand why the flood comes. Um, these particular verses, I'm going to read them all, but they're, they're very, very sober. They're very serious. So let's read them. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a bunch of questions in there that I'm going to try to address as well. Two big ones. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God, before I say this, don't try to disconnect five and six. They very much flow together. I know we have chapter and first divisions, but they go together. They go together. This is intentionally right behind this genealogy. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That's much different than chapter 5. The Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth in those days, and, after, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And this is where it gets really serious. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we can see that it takes a horrific turn in chapter 6 as we get to the flood. Um, What's going on here? What's going on here is we have the generations after the ten generations that are given to us in the line of Seth are going to take an evil turn. That truth that we talked about from D.A. Carson is going to start ringing true. Believe, assume, then deny. So verse 6, it says, Man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. So we don't have any descriptors of those men and those women and those daughters. In verse 2, we have the sons of God, the daughters of man. Verse, four, verse 1, we just have man and generals multiplying on the face of the land. Certainly that means Cain, and certainly that means Seth. And their lines were, were creating lots of daughters and lots of men. And they were born to them. So he's wanting us to also see that daughters were born to him. We already know that there's a, one little mention of a daughter, uh, and that's up in... Verse 22 of chapter 4, you've got this daughter, Namah, whose name is Pleasant, the sister of Tubal-Cain. So we, we have a mention of a daughter. Um, and then we're going into verse 2, and it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? After a lot of reading and a lot of trying to figure this out, I think that the most logical con conclusion we can make especially if we're going to try to take it in context, look it back at chapter 4 and see what's going on. Um, I think that what that means, and there's other, there's other guesses, I just think they're way off. Um, the sons of God are the line of Seth. The daughters of man is the line of Cain. So he's trying to, as he's in chapter 4 and 5, made these two contrasts. He's going to describe them as the sons of God, the ones that followed God, the ones that have a, 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 
a generation or genealogy upheld as righteous, those are the sons of God. But then you've also got the daughters of men. The previous genealogy that was uh, as upheld as not righteous, as not the way that you should go, that's, those are in the line of man, and they have daughters. And then we have a problem. We've got Seth's line and Cain's line. And Seth's line sees over there, and they look at these daughters, and they say, they're pretty good looking. I find them attractive. And so you automatically have this time where the Lord is wanting to keep this line pure, and Seth's line begins to go over to Cain's line and start to marry those. It says, the sons of God, Seth's line, saw that the daughters of man, Cain's line, were attractive. Now, being attractive in and of itself is not wrong. Being attracted to people that are attractive is not in and of itself wrong. However, in this particular time, being attracted to a different line is the problem. Um, and then it says, and they took as wives, and they took as their wives any that they chose. This is a huge problem. This is a huge problem. Because now you have the two families of the two lines intermixing. Um, they took as their wives any that they chose. You have long life given to the ten generations before that. You've got the, these men living into the 900 year range. And then all of a sudden, as they took their wives, then you see the Spirit's not going to abide with them and live for 120 years. So that seems to be a consequence. This, this shortening of life down to 120 years seems to be a consequence of what just happened, which is there in verse 2. They took wives of anybody that they chose. So we have the two lines mingling together and now defiling what would be the sacred line of Seth. Calvin says it's not a light crime to violate a distinction, established by, a distinction that's established by the Lord. The worshipers of God, Seth's line, were separated from this profane nation of, Keth, of, Seth, of Cain, and now they're um, mixed. Now, here's my second point, because that seems to be like 10 generations later, not so much a big deal. It's much later on. That certainly, this was bound to happen. This is the second thing I want us to see about consequences and clarifications on sin. We need to realize the subtlety of sin and how prone we are to compromise. This is what happened. Ten generations later, they didn't pass it on. They didn't keep investing in. All of a sudden, the assumption happened rather than belief. And then the intermingling happened. Oh, how we rationalize sin. Calling things that aren't sin, uh, that are sin, not sin. We call things that are sinful preference. Um, I'm not interested in getting into particulars. I don't think that that's particularly helpful. I trust the Spirit to lead us all to the knowledge of realizing what it is that we like to rationalize as not so sinful. But let me just read a, a, a quote from J.I. Packer. I think this is timely about the seriousness of pursuing holiness in the life of the Christian and how we will rationalize. Holiness is a neglected priority throughout the modern church, generally, and specifically a fading glory in today's evangelical church. Because we have become experts, and nothing's new under the sun, experts at rationalizing why things aren't sinful when they are. The subtlety of sin is something that we need to be um, acutely aware of in our life. Sin brings death, is the first point. And because of that, we don't need to play with it. And act like it's not a big deal. And stop rationalizing and acting like it's not. We are so prone to compromise. 
Um, they took wives of any as they chose. And then in verse 3, notice the language. Don't forget the language over and over about how creation happened. Then the Lord said. So we've got creation happen. The Lord said, boom. The Lord said, bang. And then here, the writers want to continue in that language. And then the Lord said, this is a consequence of that previous thing of intermingling. My spirit will not abide a man forever for his flesh. His days will be, shall be like 120 years. <clears throat> so now we have a reduction in the number of years that we will live. From these long lives to now. It says, my spirit shall not bide in man forever. The Lord is now, Calvin says, wearied by the obstinate perverseness of the world and now puts forward a vengeance that was previously deferred. We were getting to live longer lives. Um, the Lord was being patient with them. And now it's, it's reduced. Uh, and then he's seemingly now wanting to put in opposition his spirit to the flesh. Putting in opposition. For they are flesh. My spirit will not abide in, in them anymore. One commentator said that the reason why they were living so long is because the spirit was in some way abiding in them. And that's why they were giving longer life. But now it won't. And so the reduction of years is now happening. Um, the point is this. The state of man in chapter 6 here is in such stark contrast to Genesis 1.26, where it says, I'm going to put my image in them, that when they're made in the image of God, the imago Dei, and there's no sin in them, that chapter 6 is now in such stark contrast to the way it was in chapter 1, that the Lord's Spirit will not abide in them anymore. He will not um, live or dwell with them in, in, their, in their lives anymore. And in some kind of sense, what we, we can't say exactly, but we know that the, re, the removal of the Spirit is serious. Now, that's what brings us to chapter, I'm sorry, verse 4, the Nephilim. I don't know how much you are familiar with the controversy or what this means, um, but it is quite interesting where people go with this. There are other places in the, in the Old Testament where the phrase sons of God is used, uh, one's in Job, a couple times in Job, and in that particular time, it means it's talking about angels. And so because of that, they say what's going on here is angels came down and somehow married man, and they had offspring, and those offspring that they had were termed the Nephilim, these angel men, and they were just huge giants, and they just killed everybody, and they were awesome, and eventually God didn't want them, so he brought the flood and killed them all. Um, I just think that's ridiculous. I, I, I find that just ridiculous. I know that there's much smarter than me that people that think that. I just find that ridiculous we know in matthew twenty two thirty, when jesus is talking to them he says you're going to be like the angels who don't get married so we know that angels don't get married we know that they don't have this ability to have offspring um calvin calls it absurd so does luther um i, I think that possibly there's there's better explanations than thinking that angels actually had offspring um Textually, it makes perfect sense to me that the sons of God would be Seth's line because we just had this intentional contrast between Cain and Seth's line. So it makes sense to me that the sons of God are not the Nephilim. Instead, the Nephilim are, as the Hebrew is, it, they're just called giants, men that are big. Now, in this particular set of verses, Calvin's quick to point out that they're not even, their, their size is not even mentioned. There's a place in Numbers 13, 32, where they're called giants, and that's when they like the spies come back. We can't go over there. There's some giants over there, and he's just trying to scare everybody and say we shouldn't go. There's controversy on whether there are actual giants over there anyway, but 
Calvin's putting to point out that he actually doesn't call them big here. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and after everyone, um, the sons of God came in into the daughters of men. They bore children, and it just says we're going to describe these Nephilim. They were mighty men, men of old, the men of renown. It doesn't say they're huge. We just translate that word into giants, but he's quick to point out that it could just be talking about they were a giant. Like if I said Napoleon is a giant of, in history of being ruthless, <laughs> right? He's like this tall. So we wouldn't say, oh, he's, he's really big. We would just say who he was is known as renown. So it could be that these particular men, they may have been big, but what was likely? And, and notice also it says that they were already on the earth. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So as this particular thing happened, the Nephilim were there, whoever these people are. Um, it, what's likely is that these Nephilim were the offspring of the mingling of the two lines. Some of them were there already because they were already doing that. And now there's even more. When the sons of God, and it uses those phrases exactly, came into the daughters of man, speaking about the offspring that was happening in the marital covenant between the two, and they bore children to them. These were, these particular men, um, they were the men of old, the mighty men of renown. That men of renown sounds awesome. Like, yeah, men of renown. But it's probably used in a negative sense. They, they were ruthless, horrible people. Um, so that brings us to the point that we want to understand is that the universal main problem as we're getting through these verses is um, pollution has now become evident that as we're reading, what God wants us to see is there's a seed that's promised in 315 that's going to be the Messiah. And now everything was fine. Everything was resolved at the end of chapter 4 because praise God the seed has been restored through Seth. And then as we get to chapter 5, there's a little bit more distress now about the seed. Uh-oh, the seed's in jeopardy again. That you, have these, you have these mixing together, and the sinfulness of man is getting exceedingly sinful. It's getting awful. And so the seed's at jeopardy again. We're like, oh no, what's going to happen to the seed? And when the Lord looks, you can see this great decree from verse 5 that happens. Um, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We need to realize that thus far as sin has been described up to this particular point, it's been description of outward things that they've been doing. They ate an apple. They killed somebody. But here, it actually doesn't just speak of outward actions, but it brings it all into the heart. It, this word heart doesn't, doesn't exist in um, the Hebrew. It's not actually heart. It's talking about the center of the man, of who he is, um, who he is in regard to his belief system, who he is in regard to uh, what he thinks about the Lord. It's, it's all the center of his emotions and everything. And it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So now we're getting to this Amazing description of how awful people were. Uh, Salehammer says, The intent is apparently to depict the great flood or the deluge as a reversal of the work of creation. That's the whole point of this, is to get us to the flood to see that man is extremely sinful. The reversal of God's work in creation that's going to happen in the flood is so that it can accentuate just how sinful man was and further, just how much God abhors and hates this sin. It says the Lord saw that, that we were sinful, just as he saw things in, in creation. Here he's singing. It says that man is evil continually all the time. Man has become completely and totally depraved. 
Moses is making a bit of a change here, and he's not just, as I said, focused on an external acts, but he's focusing on the heart of who we are. Calvin says, now he ascends higher and declares that men were not only perverse by habit, outward actions, but by the custom of evil living, those habits, but that the wickedness was too deeply seated in their own hearts. And as I said, the hearts is the location of all the thoughts, feelings, volition, and morality. So he's pointing into our hearts and only as adding, as added there, only evil continually to show that there's not a hint of goodness mixed with this. And this is why the flood came. Now, we should also realize that there's common grace present there and even today. That the common grace is that God is still gracious to us today even though we're still depraved. This description in Genesis 6-5, I think, can be easily transferred to us uh, humans today. But there's still common grace because God in his common grace is not letting us be as sinful as we could be. Though we are totally corrupt, his restraining grace is keeping men as being sinful as sinful as they could be. We're so wicked, we could go do a whole bunch of worse stuff, but his common grace is restraining us and not letting us do that. So when we see outbreaks of of horrific things, Columbine, etc., um we can think to ourselves, well the restraining grace of God is making it so there's not 50 columbines a day. So his common grace is still with us. So in 6.5, we have this horrific description, this decree of God. And then after that, it says, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. When he describes of just how sinful we are, the, the reaction of him is that he's literally grieved that he had made us, um, and on earth, and it pained him to his heart. I know it says for us, sorry than grieved, but the better translation would be grieved than pained. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth, and it pained him to his heart. So we see a deep hatred of sin by God. The third thing I want us to see, the first thing that we saw is that sin brings death. The second thing we saw is that we are very easy to, to rationalize about sin and not call sin sin. We're prone to make excuses. And then in the third thing we see about sin here is that like God, we also, God hates sin. Therefore, we must hate sin as well. God hates it. So much so that he's going to cause the flood. He's going to just wipe everybody out. Destroy them all. So, there's a question the Lord was sorry or grieved. And, and that can also be understood likely as relent or changed his mind. What does this mean? What does it mean when the Bible says the Lord, the immutable God, the unchanging God, changes his mind? What does this mean for us? Well, how can we understand the immutable, unchanging God to change his mind? Calvin, I think, is the best here. He says this is accommodation, anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic is meaning um, man kind of language for us. He's, he's using man's understanding. He's, he's dis- condescending down to us and using the language that we have to describe what's going on in his mind. And, and language, because it's finite, is insufficient. But he's doing his best. It's not that the unchanging God has changed. Because he's not God if he changes. So this is accommodation language for us to help us understand just how much God hates sin and the consequences that will follow in the flood. 
Certainly God, Calvin says, is not sorrowful or sad, but remains forever like himself in his celestial and happy repose. Yet it could not otherwise be known how great God's hatred and detestation of sin is. Therefore, the Spirit accommodates himself to our capacity, saying that he changes his mind. There is here, therefore, an unexpressed antithesis between that upright nature which we have been created by God and that corruption which sprung from sin. So he's trying to paint the the biggest contrast possible of who we were in Genesis 1 and who we are now in Genesis chapter 6. And so, Calvin concludes, so we should also abhor and flee from sin because God hates sin. Literally, As we see this, it said, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth, and it pained him to his heart. Grieved pain. Now, I said over in five, notice something. There's two little words in 29 that one will bring us comfort from the pain that we have. We know that's Noah, because in verse 6, we have the Lord who is grieved and pained. And so we know that Noah is going to bring comfort to the people because there's great pain because of sin. The great delusion is going to come, but he's going to provide salvation for those that, that trust, those that believe, those few that are alive, those ones that actually, as it describes Noah, as one who walks with God, who's blameless, who has faith. He's going to bring salvation and comfort then comes to us. And the writer is using those two, two words, and Salehammer points this out, that in some way, as God is also grieved and has pain, Noah is going to bring comfort and pain, not just for humankind, but in some kind of way, because God is grieved, comfort to God as well. Now, what does that mean? It's hard to describe, but that's intentional language that the writer is using to help us see that Noah brings comfort not just to us, because we are his offspring, every one of us. Yeah, we all go to Adam, but they got wide and then they got real, got real thin again in the generations. Back down to Noah, and we're all part of Noah as well. That comfort is brought to us through Noah, and in some way, comfort is even given to God. Because in this particular moment, God hates what he has done. He hates the uh, creation. God hates sin. So what does God do then? When he looks at sin, what's God's inclination to do towards sin? That should be our inclination. Whatever he does is what we should do. I'm going to make that an application so we can understand. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven. For I am sorry, same word as it was in verse 6, that I have made them. So that's that's an undoing of creation. He's using those intentional words that he used in Genesis 1. He's undoing of creation. So God's move is... I abhor and hate sin so much, I want to blot it out. He does that by the flood. He also does it later by putting his son forward and kills his son for us to show us how much he hates sin. So if we're going to see God's gut reaction or what God does when he sees sin is he kills it, that should be what we should do. Now, point number four is going to have two separate points. It's going to speak to Christians and it's going to speak to non-Christians. So let me talk to... Christians first. Um, the, f- the fourth thing I want you to see here is as we see blot out man, God's desire is when he sees sin to want to put it to death. That's what we need to do. 
So for Christians, if you are a believer, this is something I want you to see. Something you can take away from this is we must make war on and kill sin. Now, we've got to be careful here because I know that the great act of war on sin has been done for us on our behalf by God on Christ. So understand that. Um, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about justification. I'm talking about sanctification. Sanctification is certainly a work of God in our lives, continually trusting in the Word, abiding in the Spirit, but also making real decisions as you walk through life. Like, you're still walking through life in sanctification. It's not like you're some zombie and God's just by His Spirit, you're reading the Bible every day and by the Spirit you're making perfect choices because you're now declared innocent and righteous. We still, in, in some mysterious way I'll grant you, are making real decisions. Here's the temptation towards sin. Sin's still working itself out as it says in Romans 7. My mindset is sin brings death. I don't want to compromise. I don't want to rationalize because like God, I want to hate sin. Therefore, I need to kill sin. When sin is present in my life by the Spirit, Romans 8, 13, put to death the the deeds of the body. So for Christians, I'm not speaking in justification. I'm talking about sanctification. Like God, we should want to blot out sin in our life. Destroy it. Don't make compromises. Don't worry about be, being called the, the, the one that needs to say, well, you know, you shouldn't be... Who cares? What, if you're called the freaky Christian just because you say that's sinful and I can't participate, so be it. I think this is what God wants from us. To stand out, literally, be sanctified, set apart as different. I'm not saying separate yourself from the world and never do mission. But when it comes to the way that we look in regard to sin... We must make war on sin. That's the number four for believers. Unbelievers, I have a separate message for you. This is glorious. If you're not in Christ, ignore what I just said. Because this, and look at the second one. This one's for you. God has made war on your sin and killed Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. He has made war on your sin. Isaiah 53, 10 and 4 and 5 tell us that. Where the Lord put to death his own son for the iniquities of us all. So like God, we need to blot out man. Now if we just got to the end of verse 7, this would be a horrifically awful story. Because everything was going great. You've got generation 5, everything good. And all of a sudden, attractiveness towards women and the line of Seth intermingling of, of, the, of the seed, which is what we're supposed to be looking for. The seed, the seed, the seed. It's been prominent throughout. All of a sudden, if we get down to verse 7, everything's over. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, for the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Stop. That's just awful. But, like, you have this, this kind little gracious favor that's shown to one particular person. One particular person. You know, Noah backwards in Hebrew can be pronounced grace. There's one little gracious thing being shown here. But Noah found favor. Why did he find favor? In verse 9 it says he was a righteous man, he was blameless, and that he walked with God. It sounds a lot like Enoch. He walked with God. He was obedient. He had faith. It says over in 7.1 that he was righteous. 
So we have this but talking about Noah found favorite. Everything sounds awful. But then we have Noah, as it just told us back in 532, Noah had sons. Noah had sons. We know that in 532. Noah had sons. And he's going to get on this ark. So everything seems awful. The line is over. God's going to just to kill everybody. But he's going to let Noah go in there. Oh, wait. He's in the line of Seth. He's got three sons. And we know Seth eventually gets to Abraham, the father of Israel. So as we've talked about sin and its pervasiveness and its seriousness, we know that it brings death to us. We know that we're very quick to rationalize it. Um, we're, we're very easy to say, oh, sin's not really sin in this particular thing, rather than just saying, the Spirit's obviously showing me that this is sinful. And like God, we must hate it. And as we must hate it, then we must take the action of God and make war on it and put it to death. Because sin is very, very serious. Now, as we've talked about sin, I realize that the weight of it can be almost overbearing. Almost too much to bear. And so, something a little bit different today. I want us today... Um, for the conclusion of the sermon, I'm, actually, I'm not going to say anything. Jordan's literally going to sing a song, and it is the conclusion. This song is the conclusion. It's going to provide for us, from the perspective of Christ, Christ speaking to you. We realize just how sinful we are. We realize just how prone we are to rationalize. We realize that sin brought us death. We realize that we're supposed to make war on it, and maybe we don't all the time. But I think we need to hear the gospel. So Jordan's going to sing a song to us from Christ's perspective, singing over us the good news of the gospel. After that, I'll come back up. <laughs>